Hello and welcome to Class Unity's Political Education Podcast. This is a new series which we are running in parallel to our other programming, such as the Transmissions Podcast that you might already be familiar with. This series presents material from our Political Education Committee's ongoing education programming activity. The committee organizes events, study groups, and courses to promote popular education on topics such as political economy, Marxian theory, capitalism, and socialism. In posting these political education recordings, our hope is to allow listeners like you to gain some insight into what Class Unity political education sessions are like. We also hope to build over time a repository of such recordings to serve as a resource for those who might be reading the material on their own or for those times when they simply might be unable to make it to one of our sessions. In these Introduction to Class Unity sessions, members address important aspects of Marx's explanation of capitalist society in his Wage, Labour and Capital essay, along with a number of other important essays. In this inaugural episode, we present a recording of a discussion which took place during one of our recent sessions, focusing on the first two meetings of our Introduction to Class Unity series. Joining us for this episode are members Thaddeus, Daniel, and Eric S. You'll also be hearing from Scott, who is not a member, but who is just taking part because he is interested in the material. If you are interested in the material and would like to join one of our sessions in the future, we encourage you to follow our Twitter, at ClassUnityDSA. You can also check out the show notes for this episode, where you will find links to a menu of our education series offerings, along with a schedule and a reading list for the Introduction to Class Unity series, during which this episode was recorded. Class Unity political education programming is available for free, so we encourage you to join us and take part in the discussion. All are welcome. Enjoy the show. All right. Um, okay. So um, today we're here with um, the uh, first, we're going to be talking about the first two meetings of the Introduction to Class Unity course brought to you by Class Unity Worldwide Intergalactic Planetary. Thank you for coming. Um, and in the first meeting, we talked about political economy one, and we went over Karl Marx's preface to contribution to the critique of political economy, as well as the uh, first six chapters of Karl Marx's Wage, Labor, and Capital. Um, the audio version of this book can also be found on the Class Unity uh, page for this class. Um, the second meeting, we went over Political Economy 2, Karl Marx, Wage, Labor, and Capital. We finished off the book, and then we went over Value, Price, and Profit, and also uh, the different parts into which surplus value is decomposed. I believe Daniel created a study guide for that. So you can see all of these on the website if you go there. So um, we generated a few questions for ourselves to you know, create a conversation for everybody. So we'll be going over those today. All right, so to start off, I'm talking here with uh, Eric and Scott. Um, if they want to reintroduce themselves with their last names, they can do that in a second. But um, just to kick us off, I'm going to ask them, uh, what is Marx claiming in the following statement? What is the relation of economy and politics or consciousness? And the quote is as follows. 
The loyalty of these relations of production constitutes the economic structure of society, the real foundation on which arises a legal and political superstructure and to which corresponds definite forms of social consciousness, the mode of production of material life conditions, the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. So what do you guys think about that? Uh, hi, my name is Eric Stanky. I am, uh, so yeah, so the, what he's saying is the mode of production, just to quote back at you, the mode of production of material life conditions, as the key word, the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. So what he's getting at is kind of the problem of how do we conceive of ourselves in our relation to society, to history, to the culture we belong to, to sort of like the overarching um, political and economic processes that we're all a part of. And I mean, this is can seem like a somewhat abstract question, but it's something that people are pretty much engaged in all the time in one manner or another is working out their own sort of cognitive relation to the society that they belong to. And so Marx's point about this is just to say that you cannot really imagine these, uh, so I guess he calls it social, political, and intellectual life without considering it as being conditioned by material conditions. And by material conditions, he just means economic conditions. It's the collective labor that we are all a part of and participate in, not just manually, not just when we go to work, but also um, intellectually in how we think about ourselves in relation to the world. And I, I suppose the polemical dimension to this that has to be underscored is that Marx is re replying to, I, 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 just to be kind of simplistic, a sort of a more enlightenment view of historical progress and change, whereby it's the idea, it's the commitment to the idea, but in political terms, the idea of freedom is what is sort of the motivating force of uh, modern change and progress. That's that's sort of the Hegelian view. Whereas Marx's point is that none of these things can really be thought of at all unless you're thinking it in its necessary connection to uh, um, material conditions, as he calls them. All right, right on, uh, Scott. Uh, hey, this is Scott. Um, you know what? As definitely the least well-educated person here, I have to put it in even more simple terms. This is this is about laying out who is the cart and who is the horse. It's not our consciousness dragging forward our conditions and the circumstances that surround us. It's those conditions and the history behind those conditions dragging our consciousness forward. Um, I mean, our consciousness has some ability to direct which way things go, of course, right? But that's that's not the primary driver of the situation. The primary driver of the situation is, you know, the, the conditions. Yeah, and it's right. important, I think, with Scott to say that these conditions really are historical in the sense that the conditions of modern life, what we know as modern, you know, industrial civilization is one of the most historically um, anomalous periods by far in human history. So it, there's really no way to approach how we relate to the world that doesn't take account of that, you know, material revolution many times over that 
over the past 200 years. So I think that there's a sense from this that history is a very, um, in a sense, unpredictable. Not unpredictable, but in the sense that it's a dynamic process. And so if we're going to understand ourselves, we have to understand ourselves in terms of that dynamic, which Scott said is the cart and the horse. In a sense, you have to have the dynamic to understand um, what comes along with it. First, I want to say, uh, Scott, I I think you've got some experiences that, uh, you know, a lot of us here don't. So a lot of the time that's that's a little that's that's, that can be more valuable than pure education, you know, Um, (laughs) or academic education. (laughs) Let me put it that way. But, um, you know, how I'll, I'll sum it up real quick, how I think about it. And I think he basically he's talking about when he says the material conditions, you know, uh, you know, generate the consciousness of men basically determines their existence. Is he's 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 he goes on to state that you know we're in a different mode of production. Um, and that mode of production is different from serfdom and different from slavery, right? And if you exist in one mode of production, there are different possibilities for advancing for existing within that um that mode of production and advancing that mode of production into something new. And you're not gonna necessarily be able to break out of that scaffolding you know, just through pure consciousness. So basically, whatever mode of production you exist in is going to both dictate your, you know, like day-to-day life, your ability to, uh, you know, reproduce your life um, day-to-day. And then that day-to-day activity is going to dictate how your consciousness formulates, I guess, new possibilities within that scaffolding Mm -hmm. and that's that's how i would simply put it Mm -hmm. you know if daniel you want to yeah yeah i think bring us home i I agree with uh everything you guys are saying i like the um cart and the horse analogy because you know when you when you're riding a horse you can sort of direct it right but the horse provides the the direction or the oomph or whatever and you can only steer it but you know it decides whether it goes or not and so you know we could kind of steer the economy but we don't um sort of control it like a total master and that dynamic idea seems to be that too. Also, Thaddeus, you know, you you can't I, I what I hear when I hear what you said is you can't change the world by changing your mind. And I think that is also what he's saying there. Uh, it's like a, you know, a sort of realist realist attitude or realist thesis um you know, there is a matter of fact about the way that the world is and we have to understand what it is and why it is that way. So the way I take it is, is that it's an explanatory, it's an approach. Um, he's, he's saying like, how do we understand, um, for instance, uh, kinds of, you know, human mentality, social consciousness, or, you know, um, intellectual life, political stuff. What else does he say? He'll eventually say things like art, religion, um, culture, and all this stuff. Um, way I take it is basically he distinguishes two things. Um, on the one hand, you have the totality of the, these relations of production um, or the economic structure of society, which he calls the real foundation. Um, and on the other hand, you have what he calls a superstructure um, uh, or an edifice uh, um, surface of society. And the former conditions or determines the latter. And the way I understand that is just you know, uh, like the card and the horse, um, whenever you explain something, you have a cause and you have an effect in some sense. And so, um, you know, if I drop a watermelon out of my window here, I'm, I'm a few levels up. And if I drop it, it's going to break when it hits the ground. And 
the falling is going to explain the breaking. Uh, the breaking doesn't explain the falling, right? What explains what is what's going on here. And so, you know, if we, if we have certain kinds of consciousness, certain attitudes, certain habits, opinions, practices, institutions, and so on and so forth, um, I think what he's ultimately saying is that those are not sort of uncaused causes of the way the world is. They're not basic, primitive, independent things, no. Rather, um, there are reasons why they are the way that they are, and those are to be found in the totality of relations of production, the economic stru structure of society, the real foundation. And so, basically, he presents a sort of economic, um, uh, mo a model in which the economy explains why society is as it is, and why we are as we are. The alternative to that, of course, would be to say, as you suggested, Thaddeus, basically there are just individuals with free wills and opinions, and they do whatever they want, and there's no cause, there's nothing to explain, um, and we just change the world by changing our minds, which you know is, is not really an explanatory approach at all. Yeah, and I think just to add on to that, like I think that it is important to say that you can't conceive of... Um, conscious life apart from the superstructure, but there's still creativity. There's still imagination. There's still, you know, it's, it's not this kind of dour look of social programming where there's, you know, you can't, I just can't see beyond a limited horizon. Right. It's taking account of what conditions anything you do before you can think about, you know, whether individually or socially, you have to look at the facts as they have arrived. And that's through, you know, history and all kinds of other messy processes whereby we get to that point. Yeah, and, and Thaddeus gave a good example. I mean, you have serfs only in a feudal society. Imagine you're walking down the street in a capitalist uh, society nowadays and you see a bunch of serfs and squires and knights. I mean, you wouldn't look at that and think, oh, that's real. You'd think, oh, what's going on, a festival or something or some kind of weird reenactment thing or something? Right. Or are these people insane? There are only certain kinds of people and certain kinds of pra practices in certain kinds of social contexts. So that that seems yeah. pretty clear. Right on. All right, we're ready Ready for number two. Let's, let's, let's go. Um, what is the difference between labor power and labor, basically? If you guys want to go off on that one, pretty vague, but I, I think you can handle it. Uh, yeah. So as I understand this distinction, at least, and it's, you know, it's a little, it's a tad repetitious, so it can be easy to get these two things con confused. Um, as I understand it, labor is what produces value. It is, you know, as, as the labor theory of value tells us, it is, is sort of the source is like brings it into being. Whereas labor power is an element in the relation between worker and capital. Labor power is what the worker sells by the hour in exchange for a wage. So basically what this distinction then allows is for sort of the, the discrepancy between the value that labor produces and the, what the value is given back to the worker in exchange for their labor power. So this is confusing to me. <clears throat> um, does this imply that labor power is, uh, you know, just another another capital resource for a capitalist to marshal? Is that is that what I'm saying? It's just like you know, land or machinery or, or buildings or, or whatever. Yeah, it's the name of the commodity that the worker sells to the capitalist. Right. Okay. So 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 labor power is labor uh, commodified into. It, an instrument of capital. Yeah, it's labor time in exchange for a wage. 
where the amount of time worked dictates the wage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a little jargon. So if I can jump in, um, I would say that to put it simply to me, um, labor is basically the activity that goes into making surplus value. So if you have, you know, the means of production and you have the materials, someone has to assemble those materials and then sell them, you know, so that they can be turned into profit. Right. And that's labor. All of that activity is labor. Um, and then labor power is just the wage that the laborer is paid. So that's what they sell. So that's the commodification of labor um, and the laborer. So at the end of the day, the labor power is exactly the same as the materials that go into um, creating surplus value. It just becomes another part of the whole process. So now you have the materials, you have, you know, the means of production, the tools, and then you have the labor power that goes into it, which is all bought by a capitalist. And then that turns into surplus value, which the capitalist takes a cut of. So the labor is what you do. The labor power is what you sell. If that's, mm -hmm. that's how I would, you know, sum it up in my E equals MC squared version. Mm -hmm. I really wish whoever had translated this had, hadn't chosen term that <clears throat> that is that is so simple it seems confusing like labor power because labor is like you labor in the home when you wash dishes a hunter gatherer mm -hmm. labors when he hunts and gathers uh, everything's labor uh, labor power is just that commodified like it, right. the 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 it's it's like uh, it's it's labor transformed into an instrument of capital. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just, I just, this is just something that annoys me. I wish labor power was not the word we use for that. But that's well, it. well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's kind of jargony, but the way I take it is, yeah, um, yeah. the way I take it is, so labor is just actual labor, the activity of working, making stuff, doing stuff. And there's labor in every human society, every kind. But labor power, I mean, that's when it sounds like jargony. Some people maybe, it's, it, to some people, perhaps it sounds like, you know, like, um, the labor movement, like the workers have power, or I don't know, it sounds like black, yeah, pow black yeah. power or something. It just means the capacity to work. When you're not working, you have the capacity. And so, I mean, even in, uh, you know, there is a capacity. To, I mean, some translations use that um, too. There's a capacity to work. Uh, people have a capacity to work in other modes of production, like ancient slave societies, feudal um, societies, serfs uh, have the the capacity to work when they're not working when they're sleeping and then when they work it's actual work for the for the landlord who, to whom they pay rents and um i yeah i the difference is indeed just that in, in capitalism labor power becomes a commodity which workers buy so the way i'd put it is simply as you put it thaddeus labor power is um when a worker uh puts him or herself at the disposal of a capitalist for a given amount of time so let's say, you know, the way the minimum wage is what, 10, 25 or whatever. So you're at the disposal of, yeah, it said the worker is at the disposal of the capitalist for an hour in exchange for 10, 25. And that's indeterminate, right? What you do within that hour. And that's why it's capacity. It's a power. It's not a, it's not what you actually do. Um, you know, you, you might not have any work to do, so you're sort of idling, um, 
but um, you set that labor power to work, or actually the capitalist pays you and sets your labor power to work. You work for the capitalist. And then as a consequence of that, things are produced, things are bought and sold. Um, money, more money returns to the capitalists than the cost of production of those goods and services. And so that um, uh, excess revenue over costs, that is the source of surplus value or profit. And so, yeah, if if the workers were paid not for their labor power, their capacity to work, so many dollars per hour of being just at the disposal, the whim of a capitalist, if, if rather they were paid for their labor, there would be no profit. So I, I think that's also important. Um, labor and labor power, that distinction is important for exploitation, namely um, being paid for your capacity less than the value of what you actually produce. That's the origin of profit. Does that, what is, does that make sense? Yeah. Does that work for everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All right. So um, now next question. Uh, how does the worker understand and relate to his or her own labor activity and wages? What does Marx mean by his analogy of the silkworm? So Marx says, the laborer who for 12 hours long weaves, spins, bores, turns, builds, shovels, breaks stone, carries hods, and so on, is this 12 hours weaving, spinning, boring, turning, building, shoveling, stone breaking, regarded by him as a manifestation of life, of life as life? Quite the contrary. Life for him begins where the activity ceases and the table at the tavern in bed. Um, the 12 hours work on the other hand, has no meaning for him as weaving, spinning, boring, and so on, but only as earnings, which enable him to sit down at a table, to take his seat in the tavern, and to lie down in a bed. If the silkworm's objective in spinning were to prolong its existence as caterpillar, it would be a perfect example of a wage worker. So what do we think of his analogy of the silkworm? I mean, it's a beautiful metaphor, I think. I think it's, um, I mean, we, we tend to think of the caterpillar, you know, the, the stages of metamorphosis. The caterpillar, you know, it eats, it builds its cocoon, and then it's able to transform itself into a butterfly. Um, I don't know enough about silkworms to say that they don't do this, but I think the point of the metaphor is kind of to show that if the silkworm were spinning and working not towards its own future end, its own future flourishing as a beautiful butterfly, but just to keep itself in the same state of being a silkworm, then it would be, a, a, as he says, a perfect example of a wage worker. And this is because the whole you know, description of the wage relationship in labor is the description of alienated labor. It's the worker not having a, any real um, ownership of the products of their labor. What they create does not belong to them, but rather they get a wage in exchange for their labor. So it's it's the worker being separated from the, the fruits of their own labor by the, the labor relationship. And it's actually going so far, <clears throat> it's actually going so far as to portray the worker as a domesticated animal, which is exactly what a what a you know what a silkworm is. It is a domesticated animal which has been transformed over many generations, like the rest of our gener of our 
domesticated animals into a sort of uh, a parody of itself. These things are supposed to be butterflies. That's that's the end stage we're going for. <clears throat> but we've, uh, you know, we've uh, um, uh, tortured their life cycle to prolong this stage where what they do is they literally give away of themselves, you know, what they'll never get back, you know, their, their lives. And uh, that's, that's the same situation that capitalism traps a worker in. You, you give away your time, you'll never get it back. Um, it, you become a parody of yourself. You should be living. Instead, you're, you know, doing whatever it is we do. No, this is, this yeah, is a perfect metaphor. It kind, it kind of, I'm trying not to swear. <laughs> it kind of messes, it kind of messes me up. It's, 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 the, it is the perfect metaphor. Yeah. And I mean, I, the, the connection just to life that, you know, is this stone breaking, shoveling and so on really a manifestation of life? Is this what life is supposed to be or is it a bastardization of life? And, you know, it's not the I want to be a but I want to be a butterfly, Eric. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> there we are. Yeah, sure. But, you know, it's it's the point is not to say that, oh, you know, in a perfect world, we would not work. We would just be butterflies. No, the perfect world would be we would have some just recompense for our labor. Our labor would be an extension of ourselves and expression of ourselves and something that we could actually take pride in beyond just getting paid for it by the hour. So. I'll do two things here. Um, so first, like trying to bring an instance from like my life. So like I, I'm an architect and, you know, I work adjacent to the construction business. Right. So I design things and facilitate construction, but I don't actually build anything at the end of the day because I, I don't own it. It's not mine. I'm not actually there's there's no end to what I do. Right. Because once the building is designed and permitted and built for the developer, I'm on to building the next thing, right? Like you guys said, you never get to become the butterfly. So I never get to be the owner of the building. I never get to live in that building. I don't, I rarely get to see these buildings after they're built. Um, but what I do get to do is go back to work the next day and design a new building, right? Every day, every time something's done, I do it over and over again. So it's like prolonging the existence of a caterpillar and you never get to realize what you do with your labor. You never reach the point of realization. And um, to bring in another animal for this, it might be even worse to have the existence of like a, a dairy cow because it's so perverse with dairy cows to the point where they rob them of their milk to the degree where they're requi they require, mm -hmm. um, you know, a farmer to milk them every day. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, their udders will, you know, get filled with milk. And I, I don't know if they explode. I, that's what my cartoon brain imagines, my child brain, that their udders just explode when they're full of milk. But whatever happens isn't good because they are required to be milked after a certain amount of time. So at the end of the day, just like we're required to seek out a capitalist to give our labor power to, it's the same as a dairy cow requiring, you know, a farmer. So at the end of the day, I think what it's saying is we become a beast of burden and not actual, you know, humans in a sense. That is so to, to, to talk about it from the other end, I do construction. 
So I will say we curse architects a lot because y'all give us some challenges <laughs> sometimes. But like if we we almost get to become a butterfly more than you, because at the very least, every tradesman that you've ever met does this. Go you go the go festival, hey, I helped build that. Right there, right. I was I was in there pulling wire. I did that. Now we don't get to go <laughs> live in the building and and uh, perform our activities. We're on to the next building, same as you. But if nothing right. else, we get to say, hey man, I my hands were inside the guts of that thing. Yeah, that is something. I, I worked on a job site for about, I was on site for a year and a half. And that's a whole different experience than being in the office. It's just those little things yeah. make you feel a little bit better about what you do. Hmm. I really like that example with the cow um, because yeah, I was trying to think of another one when you said animals. I thought, hmm, maybe chickens that give... They lay eggs, but for what? Because they don't become, you know, they don't become chickens or whatever. But no, the cow's really good. And it reminded me of a quote by Joan Robinson where she said, the only thing worse than being exploited in capitalism is not being able to be exploited by a capitalist. Um, because once you depend on it, if you can't, then um, you you can't survive. You your, your livelihood depends on it. And you, of course, you can change your employer, but you can switch from one capitalist employer to the next, but you can't decide not to... Um, have one at all. So you're sort of stuck with the capitalist class. I would, I would, um, uh, there are a few, a few lines up in this passage on the, on the study guide we have has some interesting stuff in it too. He says, um, basically, so, uh, the, the actual labor is the expression of the laborer's own life and, um, sells the capacity to do so to another person in order to secure the means to exist. So you you sell your ability to work or be at someone's disposal for a certain amount of time in order to get a monetary wage that you'll use to buy commodities that you need to consume in order to live. And, um, and so he says that um, the life activity of labor, you know, we spend at least, uh, we, you know, a third of our adult life at uh, work, I think. And uh, so this activity isn't the end, isn't an end um, or an objective of our um, existence. It's a means for securing our existence. So we work in order to live uh, um, and kind of work in order to live, in order to work, in order to live. And then, you know, you got to kind of ask why. He says he works that, uh, so a worker works so that he or she can stay alive and does not count the labor itself as a part of his or her life, but as a sacrifice of life. Um, the product of the activity, um, the commodity produced, is not the aim of the activity. You know, if we're in the, you know, if we're, you know, if we're just a hunter gatherers, we're looking for nuts and berries or deer or whatever, and um, the object of our activity, the food, is the means for sustaining our lives. But um, in capitalism, no, you uh, exchange your capacity to work for money in order to get other commodities. And so, um, you know, let's say you sell your hour of work for 1025, uh, then you take that 1025 and you buy 1025 worth of commodities, groceries. At the end of the day, when you're done eating them, you have to start over, right? You've, you've used it up, it's gone. And the only way to get more food is to do it again. And that's what I see in the caterpillar example, right? Um, usually a caterpillar builds a cocoon out of silk to become a butterfly, a moth, a moth. Okay. Sorry. Pardon We've me. been using butterflies. So uglier, u- uglier version. Um, but you know, like, a, like a, in the common view of, uh, 
you know, the mythology of small business owners. You work, you save up some money, you become a small business owner. You know, you're a, you're a caterpillar, you save up, you make a cocoon, you become a butterfly. You don't stay a caterpillar forever. But no, if you're in this business of taking your labor power, selling it for money and using the money to buy other groceries, when you buy those groceries, you consume them. The only way to stay alive is to do it again. Whereas capitalists, of course, they start with money and they buy commodities like your labor power. They use those to make more commodities, sell them for more money. And so they're in an inverted circuit. So, yeah, I mean, this is, some people call it alienated labor, where what you spend most of your life doing just becomes a means for your life. Because you're basically sold to someone else's, to be at someone else's disposal. Um, and so you're, you're not autonomous. You're not in charge of yourself. Um, All right. I mean, so, another thing, another thing, just to add, oh. um, it's also so just recompense, Eric, you said, and we use this word exploitation and it can sound sort of like moralistic or like we're complaining or something. But I mean, think about it. We all know this is true almost by definition, right? You have to get less value. You have to get paid less value than, than the employing capitalist receives, um, so you have to produce more value or pro procure more value for the employing capitalist than you get paid. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for that capitalist to employ you. Um, and so the, the capitalist moth uh, lives at the expense of the silkworm. I don't know. I think it's a beautiful analogy too, but um, take some interpreting. part one but we're not done today because there's a there's a part two today all right so um let's start with part two uh number one in the study guide uh what is capital according to march uh, Mar according to marx <laughs> what do you think this means please summarize for us and the quote to go with this is a cotton spinning machine is a machine for spinning cotton only under certain conditions does it become capital. Torn away from these conditions, it is as it is as little capital as gold is itself money, or sugar is the price of sugar. Capital is also a social relation of production. It is a bourgeois relation of production, a relation of production of bourgeois society. So, what do we? What do you guys think Marx means uh, with that quote? And you know most. Specifically, what does he believe capital is? Um, no, I mean it's, it's honestly this is this is uh, one of this is one of the more easy to understand things here. Uh, you know, capital is just what the capitalist owns that he uses to produce uh, to produce surplus value. Mm -hmm. It's you know maybe not even owns because you know he may, he may not own the land on which his building is. He may not own the building. Um, hopefully, he doesn't own the people that work for him. Uh, so it's, it's just the, the, uh, social instruments that he uses to produce the surplus value. 
Yeah, it's the yeah, it's kind of the how things happen, not necessarily the literal aspect of the cotton spinning machines spinning cotton, which you know you can imagine taking place under a, a number of different social relations, but it's the overall so, um, social aspect of it, which is you know what so often is is can be hard to discern. So, to me. I think what capital is, it's it's kind of um, both the um, how and, you know, the what for, you know, uh, with what and what for, basically. And the with what part of capital is like the initial investment. It's the, you know, the 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 materials, you know, the the money, which could be argued as rent. So I'll, I'll keep the money part out of it. So first, he's investing in buying the commodities, which are the materials and the means of production in order to, you know, change those materials. And then he buys labor power. Those are all capital. That's what the capitalist is buying. And then what the capitalist gets from buying all those things is those things come together to produce more, to produce surplus value with which is more capital for the capitalist, as I understand it. Um, yeah, I think, and with without, and to go on with the rest of the quote, um, without this relationship of capital production, then, you know, what we use to exchange, you know, capital, exchange commodities that are produced from the capital, um, you won't have gold. If you use gold as a means of exchange, but you have no capital investment and you have no commodities created from capital, then money has no value. Um, sugar is not the price. Sugar will just be sugar if it can't be sold, you know, for more capital. Um, and then the same thing goes, and this is a bourgeois relationship of production because how, how would I put, um, bourgeois society? I think because bourgeois society is basically kind of just when more people have the right to you know, ownership of the means of production, but not everyone does. So individuals now have the right to ownership of the means of production. Um, mm. So we've already socialized production, um, which would be like the factory, which would be the industrial revolution. And now we've allowed individuals and not just the monarchs to have ownership of the means of production. Um, and that's to me what bourgeois uh, relationships are to the means of production. It's just the individualization of the means of production outside of the hands of the monarch and as well as the socialization hmm. of production. This one to me was a little bit, is a little bit harder to grasp or to explain. It's an easy one to grasp, but it's it's hard to express, you know, like how we often say, how would you explain this to a five-year-old? This one is a hard one to explain to a five-year-old, to me. Yeah, it's kind of like explaining, um, like, what is the human body? Well, it's made up of a lot of different things. Your heart pumps blood. Your lungs take in oxygen. You know, you have a central nervous system. You have a digestive system. All of these things, you know, that you can understand them on their own in their bare functionality, but it's the, it's the individual human being, the, you know, complete expression of an organic life. 
and sort of like likewise, capital cannot be reduced to any one of its um, you know constituent parts, aspects of the production process, but is sort of what emerges from the entire process of self-reproduction. Right. So, so what I'm hearing you say is that we need the uh, magic school bus of you know Marxist economics. Something like that. Something like that. All right. I would. I would. I would say. Um. It's just you know the at earlier in the just above a bit in the chapter. This comes from. Um, Mark says. Um. The basically the all the classical mainstream econo- economists say that, you know, capital consists of raw materials, instruments of labor, means of subsistence, which are used uh, to produce more raw materials, more instruments, more means of subsistence. Um. Basically, that's Smith and Ricardo. They say that, and and he's basically saying, no, it's not that simple. Even economists today, they say, you know, capital is a factor of production. It's basically the machinery with which you produce stuff, whether that means more machinery, producer goods, or, you know, edible, let's say, commodities, final consumer goods. Um, Because obviously there are two kinds, you know, workers don't eat uh, machinery. Uh, But he's saying, no, it's it's not like that because, you know, that makes it sound like a machine is capital, just sort of in itself by itself. Um, and he's saying, no, a machine like a spinning machine uh, is only capital in certain social conditions. Um, imagine you had a time machine and you took a took a cotton spinning machine back to, um, you know, ancient Egypt and they're building the pyramids there, you know, people dying left and right to build this, you know, some kind of religious justification or whatever. And you're like, hey guys, check this out. You know, it would just there'd be no room, there'd be no place for you in the sort of framework of their world understanding. And so similarly, if you, you know, if, you know, you have a cotton spinning machine today, what is that? It's not capital. That's a antique. That's something in a museum. And so um, the way I understand it, he's saying capital isn't just stuff you use to make more stuff. Basically capital is um, uh, a value. So a, a numerical value which, you know, can be instantiated either in money or in commodities, things. And, uh, but, it, you know, it changes forms at different places and different times. You know, you start out with money, you buy some commodities, you buy means of production, you buy raw materials, you buy labor power. You say, hey, workers, use those with those to make more commodities. And then you say, okay, now I've got my commodities. Goodbye, workers. You sell those, you get more money. There's your surplus value. And so capital is that entire process, really. It's a relation of things. It's a whole process. Um, it's sometimes it's money, sometimes it's things. It's never just things. Um, so for instance, tools, there've always been tools, but capital is more specific than tools because it really only is dominant in the capitalist mode of production. And so he has the other example. Um, it's kind of a brutal example, but he's, you know, he uses race. He says, um, you know, basically, you know, understanding of race in relation to slavery, um, the understanding of race that we've inherited now has a historical context and um, you know, it, it only under certain conditions are certain people slaves. There's no intrinsic quality. A person is what they are uh, in their social context. And so similarly, like he says, when the firearm was invented, the invention of the firearm changed the social relations. Um, you know, you can't fight with swords anymore when there are guns. Um, similarly, when the cotton spinning Jenny was invented, you don't weave by hand if you want to make a profit. And so, you know, capital is basically how to, how to make, how to make profit. It's not just, you know, you're not making, you're not just making donuts to eat them. You're trying to make profit. All right. If I, if I talked about this, I would spend 20 minutes, but I, I was telling, I was telling a guy at work 
the other day, uh, yesterday, <clears throat> that capitalism is a satanic virus that <laughs> that infects otherwise normal societies, um, which is which is optimized solely for producing uh, surplus value wildly in excess of what it could possibly be necessary to sustain society. And like, I'll stop right there. Cause I'll just keep, I'll keep you at it. <laughs> well, let's do it. Know. Let's do it for a second. It's like, it is like a zombie, right? Because, um, no satanic, it's important to say satanic virus. It's not just a zombie. <laughs> More like vampires or a Borg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a Borg. It spreads, you know, and if you don't, you know, cause like when it's profit seeking, you got to make the profit. And if you don't make the profit, somebody else will, and you'll go out of business. So it is like yeah. a, it's like a plague that lives through us. It's not any one of us. It has sort of a life of its own. I'm going to extend Scott's metaphor. It's like stupid vampires, right? So you got the one type of vampires where they're like ancient and they keep it low key because, you know, humans are their food source. You got to eat humans to sur- or drink their blood to survive. So you don't want to kill them all. Then you have stupid vampires. Right. And they're like, man, we just really love blood. You know, like capitalists. I really love money. I really love this blood. I'm going to drain well, I don't all know. I think the capitalist then, is not a you stupid destroy vampire. Yourself. The capitalist I mean, is not the, yet. <laughs> the smart vampire because they're like, look, don't okay. don't work them too hard or else we'll lose our uh, what okay. is, our, our money uh, cash cow. You, you know, and the other we- the other weird thing that it sort of implies to me is that like this I'm going to keep saying satanic virus. It's really fun to say <laughs> like there's all these instances prior to what we think of as the modern instantiation of capitalism, where it's like trying to turn the motor to get it started. You know, like you see a lot of that, like in the late Roman Republic, a lot of that looks mm-hmm. like capitalism. Um, uh, you, you see that in, in various points in Chinese history, like they're trying to turn the key and all the conditions aren't there yet, but they're trying real hard to get the thing, that, to get that machine going. Very interesting. There's, there's, there's a lot we could go on with that, but okay. So, um, Let's try this out, though. Um, what is the relation between labor and capital? How do you understand what Marx means? And please summarize. Uh, does a worker in a cotton factory produce only cotton? No, he produces capital. He produces value which serves anew to command his work and to create by means of it new values. Capital can multiply itself only by exchanging itself for labor power by calling wage labor into life. The labor power of the wage laborer can exchange itself for capital only by increasing capital, by strengthening that very power whose slave it is. Increase increase of capital, therefore, is increase of the proletariat, i.e. of the working class. So what do we think about that? Yeah, there's definitely a very um, insidious implication to all of this. Um, You know, it's the sense that capital and labor within, you know, the bourgeois relations of production, they depend on one another, meaning that essentially you can't have capital without labor. And within capitalism, you can't have labor without increasing capital. And so what this means for the laborer is that their work actually contributes to their being their alienation, essentially, from their disenfranchisement from the fruits of their own labor. And so capital, which depends on labor, actually grows at the expense of labor, even as it increases the pool of labor, that is, it creates a, you know, an ever larger underclass of people who can be pulled into the production process. Likewise, labor itself can only 
exist by giving by growing capital. So it kind of it grows capital like a tumor that is living off of it, rent free, so to speak. I have nothing to add to that. That's perfect. That that was that was pretty pretty good. Um, I'll try my best. Um, I'll, I'll I'll do the hopeful part first that I that I get out of this quote is that um, in generating more capital, um, it's it necessitates that a capitalist has to acquire more labor power to create more capital because that's fundamental to creating capital. So what that creates is an ever larger working class, which is the only thing that can, you know, organize to kind of depose, you know, the, the, the capitalist class, just like the capitalist class deposed the monarchy. So by extension, they're creating, they're creating the instrument of their own destruction. Right. And then mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> to make it a little uh, less hopeful, what that does to the working class, though, is it creates an ever larger um, reserve labor force, which means that now the capitalist has, you know, uh, a, a, a class of people that they can fire and they can hire at will, you know, at will employment. And that creates competition amongst the working class, which, you know, disincentivizes them from fighting against the capitalist because that's the hand that feeds and kind of puts them in an antagonistic relationship with each other. Um, so, you know, the good part first and then the bad news second. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there is, uh, well, in the connection of capital, capitalist production and the population, there can be some good news, namely in the upswing of economic cycles, you know, the real, the real wage, the absolute standard of living can increase. But yeah, I think what I, I think insidious is the right word because, so he says, does a worker in a cotton factory produce only cotton? Uh, no, he produces capital. Uh, well, as we just saw, you know, capital isn't just a machine you use to spin cotton. Uh, capital is a machine you use and the cotton you use the machine on, and even the labor capacity itself that a capitalist uses to create a value which is greater than the value spent on doing that, namely to produce a surplus value. So basically workers produce surplus value, which is Marx's jargon for aggregate profit. Um, capitalists will, under, they will, they will make production happen only if at the end of the day, there's more value uh, than there was at the beginning. And so otherwise, what's the point? And so, the more value that a worker produces, um, the more the capitalist appropriates. Um, because you know the, the the legal relation is that the worker is entitled to the wage, but not to what the worker actually produces. Uh, the capitalist is entitled to that, and the capitalist sells it and is entitled to the money from the sale. And so, um, the more value that workers make, the more capitalist more capital capitalists have to employ more labor. Um, and so. Um, you know, a little bit earlier, I think it's um, the previous chapter, um, Mark says that capital preserves itself and multiplies by exchange with direct living labor power, similarly. So basically, you know, if you just have machines, they're not going to put themselves to work. And if you just have some people who can do some stuff, you're not really going to um, get anything out of that. Um, you, have to, uh, you have to bring the things together, the raw materials, the, you have to buy them the machines, the labor power, you bring them together, you produce something, 
in order to get more money than you spend on doing so. And so if, if um, money and raw materials and machinery weren't um, used by uh, used in order to produce more stuff with labor, then there would be no surplus value. So it multiplies itself only when capitalists employ workers. Otherwise, you're just redistributing stuff, you know. So, for instance, you got 99 bones and you got 100 dogs. No amount of distribution is going to make sure every dog gets a bone. You're going to have to make uh, more, you're going to have to have more bones, right? So, the only way um, capital will increase is if you have production. And in capitalism, that means employing people. So, if you stop employing people, you're going to stop having surplus value. Because, you know, I mean, labor power is the only commodity on earth which, when you buy it and consume it, it produces more commodities of a greater value than it costs. There's no other commodity like that. Is there? I mean, maybe I just overlooked something. Um, wizards? Are wizards real? Because, you know, they can create whatever they want, you know? What? <laughs> That wizards withstanding, um, since you mentioned it, uh, let's go on to number three. Uh, what does Marx mean by surplus value and how is it related to labor, wages, capital, profit, and interest, finance, then landlords, rent, please? And I'm gonna let's we're, we're gonna summarize this, so bear with me here. Um, the surplus value or that part of the total value of the commodity in which the surplus labor or unpaid labor of the working man is realized, I call profit. The whole of that profit is not pocketed by the employing, cap the employing capitalist. The monopoly of land enables the landlord to take one part of that surplus value under the name of rent. Whether the land is used for agriculture, buildings, or railways, or for any other productive purpose. On the other hand, the very fact that the possession of the instruments of labor enables the employing capitalist to produce surplus value or what comes to the same, to appropriate to himself a certain amount of unpaid labor enables the owner of the means of labor, which he lends wholly or partly to the employing capitalist, enables in one word, the money lending capitalist to claim for himself under the name of interest, another part of that surplus value so that there remains to the employing capitalist as such only what is called industrial or commercial profit, dot, dot, dot. Rent, interest and industrial profit are only different names for different parts of the surplus value of the commodity or the unpaid labor enclosed in it. And they are equally derived from his source, from this source, and from this source alone. They are not derived from land as such or from capital as such, but land and capital enables their owners to get their respective shares out of the surplus value extracted by the employing capitalist from the laborer. For the laborer himself, it is a matter of subordinate importance whether that surplus value, the result of his surplus labor, or unpaid labor is altogether pocketed by the employing capitalist or whether the latter is obliged to pay portions of it under the name of rent interest, rent and interest away to third parties. Supposing the employing capitalist, uh, suppose the employing capitalist to use only his own capital and to be his own landlord, then the whole surplus value will go into his pocket. So, 
what what does Marx mean when he's talking about um, surplus value in relation to uh, la- uh, labor um, interests um, and landlords? Capital so, interest in landlords, sorry. Yeah, so if surplus value is the profit gained from the production process, the value that is not paid back to the worker as wages, then it seems like there's this sort of um, elaborate, uh, you know, a series of um, of divisions of that, that value going to different types of property owners. So this is kind of describing how property attracts surplus value to itself as by owning, whether that's, you know, the ownership of the means of production, which accrues part of the surplus value to the industrialist, or that's the rent on the land or its debt as the form of interest. It's by, by having a share in those things as capitalists, then by the nature of capital itself, further value will accrue to those sources, those, you know, um, estates, if you will, or those, you know, uh, those properties. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's, it, 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 it's describing again, just kind of how this broader social relationship of ownership is supported and only really possible because of the exploitation of labor. And so it, it, I think it's useful to see again how these things can tie together, where like disparate seeming activities and aspects of economic life really inform one another and depend on one another in ways that often go unremarked on, and you know, take some digging to uncover. It, it's just to me like the opposite of the way we we typically look at profits. Um, you know, today, you know, you, you have the gross profits, which some are then paid out in labor costs, some are paid out in rent, some are paid out in fixed costs and, and, and uh, you know, um, movable costs and not movable costs, not the right word, but it, it's looking at it from the perspective of the labor, like everything above what I am paid is surplus value, which is then, which is then broken out into, into, into different divisions like rent, like interest. Um, it's, it's, it's taking, it's frankly, it's taking, it's taking, it, it's attempting to, to look at that from the perspective of the laborer rather than the capitalist. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think that's very well put. I think, and what you're getting at is. Yeah, I remember, sorry, just to interrupt for one second, Scott, okay. you put it, the way you put it, um, in the discussion in our meeting was super, I thought made it really clear from the capitalist standpoint, uh, wages are a, a cost wages are a pain in the ass right pardon me uh their their wages are just you know like you know the workers are trying to eat up all my income right but um of course you only get labor which does the work which makes the stuff which constitutes the profit if you hire labor which means pay wages and so seen from the sort of like big picture wages aren't just the cost cuz there's no profit if you don't have uh, labor for for which you pay wages. So from the worker's standpoint, like all of the extras over and above the overhead costs, like materials and labor, that's all surplus, right? So that I thought was really good. Um, Namely from the capitalist standpoint, the darn workers are trying to take up all the value, but um, actually, you know, it's landlords and um, financiers. 
Yeah, that's that's what I thought. Looking at it from the laborer standpoint, everyone else gets a cut from the surplus value except for the laborer. And the laborer has zero concern with who is getting the surplus value, right? So the laborer is completely alienated from all profit, all surplus value, right? And the capitalist, on the other hand, who employs the laborer is an intact is in an, is in an antagonistic relationship with everyone also because like you know Scott said um the capitalist believes the laborer is a pain in the ass because he has to pay him he also believes that you know the rentier is a pain in the ass the landlord is a pain in the ass and maybe to a lesser degree the financier is a pain in the ass because you know they give them the initial investment but all of those cut out of his profits. And, you know, to a certain degree, to me, it, you know, you, you could see it one way or another, but it shows a kind of hierarchy of, you know, who, who is more paras parasitic in the relationship. Obviously, the laborer, the worker who is creating all of the surplus value and gets none of it can't be a parasite, right? That's the host. And then the capitalist is a second level of, you know, parasite, but at least he facilitates the activity that creates the surplus value. But then you've got the financier who's the next level because he does a little bit of initial investment, but all he's giving is, you know, a little bit of capital and then he gets money back. So he gives a little bit of something at the beginning, but then he gets, gets it all back. But the landlord, all they have to do is supply a natural resource that they have no rights to, right? In, in my opinion, right? According to our laws, they do. But the the rent, the the landlord just sits there and says, hey, you know, if, if you want to work on my land, you have to give me some money and I'm going to do nothing after that. So to me, it is kind of a hierarchy of parasites of which the laborer is the host. Mm -hmm. That seems to be what surplus value is. In capitalism. Yeah, you 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 made it even sharper. So from the perspective of the capitalist, the capitalist is the host, like and, and the worker is the parasite. So the capitalist is this big, healthy, chubby body, and the worker is just a, <laughs> a mosquito trying to suck as much blood out of there as possible. It's a it's a swarm of mosquitoes trying to suck the capitalist dry. Um, but of course, from the worker's perspective, well, I mean, it's not necessarily I don't know. I mean, from the worker's perspective, like you said, Thaddeus, um, you know, they, they might not have a perspective on this, but at least from the, the perspective Marx is presenting, which takes labor as, sh which shows that it's the foundation of this uh, relationship. Um, the worker is the host because the worker produces the aggregate wealth, which is exchanged for money, which constitutes the aggregate profit or surplus value from which um, landlords, financiers, uh, commercial capitalists, industrial capitalists profit, and the capitalists, the landlords, and the financiers are parasites. So, so the working class is this more or less healthy body, which is being sort of gang swarmed by a by a, a vicious flock of mosquitoes, maybe more like piranhas. I don't know. When I hear this, though, I want to just focus on first two sentences of the second paragraph in the study guide. I think Marx is just making a distinction between appearance and reality, um, rent, interest, and profit. Um, so imagine you're a landlord 
you think, oh, I have real assets. I have land. Um, and, and those real assets are the source of my income. The land generates income for me. I get rent. Someone pays rent to me. Similarly, if interest, you know, if you're a, a banker, a financier, you say, oh, I have monetary assets, financial assets. And those are my, the source of my income, the source of my revenue. I have money and that's where my income comes from. Interest. I get interest. Someone pays interest. Uh, they have to work, make money, pay interest. Similarly, industrial profit or commercial profit, you know, you have capital and you think, okay, my capital is the source of my income. I get my money, my profit from capital. Um, Marx is saying, no, it appears that way to a landlord, to a financier, to an industrial or commercial capitalist. But really, um, real assets like owning land or houses or whatever that you rent or owning money that you rent, you lend out for interest or uh, having capital, which you use to produce things, which you sell for um, more value than they cost. These are just different forms of the total value produced by labor, which is greater than the cost of production. So if you own capital, if you own land, if you own money, then in the system in which we live, the state entitles you to a portion of that surplus value um, and they'll back you up. Um, you know, you have a right to a portion of that aggregate growth, surplus value. Um, it doesn't actually, the, the, your profit doesn't actually come from cotton spinning machines. Obviously, someone has to produce something, you sell it for more money than you paid, and and so labor is the source of it. But it looks like it comes from the land or from money or from cotton spinning machines. And um, The reality is that if labor didn't produce more stuff at the end of the day, uh, all these people couldn't get more money at the end of the day. Because, I mean, landlord's the easiest case. They don't do anything. They don't have to do anything. Imagine you go to Detroit, you buy a house really cheaply. You could just wait eight months, flip the house. You literally did nothing but, you know, just change the deed. And you get a bigger you get a bigger piece of the aggregate wealth than you paid for it. Funny thing to, to cap this off to go with that is um, <clears throat> right now, I think it's Corvette or just luxury cars in general. They're paying people let's say $5,000 to keep the car for, let's say two years. I don't know the exact time they're telling people that they want them to keep the car, but they're paying people to keep their cars because what people have been doing is buying the cars and then selling them right away at a profit. And that makes them look bad. So now they want people to keep the cars and they're, you know, telling them, Hey, we'll give you a little bit of a premium if you just don't sell our cars, you know, but, uh, Kind of to go forward with number four, uh, what does Marx mean uh, when he makes the following statement about the situation of the working class? Um, he says, we have thus seen that even the most favorable situation for the working class, namely the most rapid growth of capital, however uh, much However much it may improve the material life of the worker does not abolish the antagonism between his interests and the interests of the capitalists. Profit and wages remain as before in inverse proportion. If capital grows rapidly, wages may rise, but the profit of capital rises disproportionately faster. The material position of the worker has improved, but at the cost of his social position. The social chasm that separates him from the capitalist has widened. Finally, to say that the most favorable favorable condition for wage labor is the fastest possible growth of productive capital is the same to say the quicker the working class multiplies and augments the power inimical to it, the wealth of another which 
lords over that class, the more favorable will the condition under which it will be permitted to toil anew at the multiplication of bourgeois wealth, at the enlargement of power of capital. Uh, content thus to forge for itself the golden chains by which the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie drags it into its train. <laughs> 19th century what do, what, do, what do we think? Woof. Yeah. <laughs> More metaphors. But, uh, It is a work yeah, of interpretation. I mean, it, Please. It is. It is. Shed some light. Are we me. the golden chains or are we the train? No. Um, I mean, I think like this is an interesting passage to read in light of, you know, the modern American economy, because if any group of people has benefited from the growth of capital, which is, you know, the growth of an industry globally, it's, you know, it's post-war America. It's by far the most prosperous time and place in just pure material terms in human history. Like there's no, no really close second. And so on the one hand, it's true that the development of capital, the rapid growth of capital creates a lot of benefits for people just in absolute terms, in terms of, you know, uh, owning a house, owning cars, owning all manner of consumerist goodies, and whatnot. And what this effectively disguises, and which has become more and more apparent in America, certainly in the past 20 years, is that what this does not, um, or what this, um, on the one hand, in absolute terms, the gains of the working class are also the increase of the divergence between the working class and the ruling class, just in uh, terms of the overall benefits from the uh, growth of capital. So even as the 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 you know the growth of a market economy, yeah, it does have very noticeable effects for the entire population. But the most effects are in the concentration of wealth into such few hands that eventually, and you know, we're getting closer and closer to that point, the kind of life that you know a few generations have gotten to enjoy becomes more and more untenable. And you have a more, you know, apparently and obviously deeply uh, divided and antagonistic society. It always, it always looks to me like, like the the sort of the 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 long term goal of the the capitalist virus is to actually regress from capitalism into feudalism to 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 set up the uh, the, the bourgeoisie at a I'm being a little ahistorical in my terms here, but just to set them up at a station that is so far above the worker that the worker is effectively a serf again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you- it turns right back to you know the 1300s. How do you, well, mean, how do you mean even that? before that? Even before that, that'll be the fun part. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, first, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make uh, three points uh, real quick to um, kind of extend the. Uh, like dark metaphor that you know was given that it uh it it drags it drags basically the laborer into the bourgeoisie's train and uh i know i know marx wrote this before world war ii so we have to come up with a new term you know like we usually say that's too soon right when something bad happens in history but you know marx was he was too early you know to, he came up with this idea of the trains running on time way too early. He was ahead of his time. 
So, but on that, um, kind of what you were saying about going back to feudalism, you can take it as like a progression too, as far as like the regression is concerned, um, that how capital funnels wealth to the top more and more and more. So more and more people become relatively poor to the capitalists. And this kind of has its genesis in, let's say, hunter-gatherer society, everyone's living in huts, right? Or living in the same cave. And then they elect a chief and the chief gets a little bit extra, right? He gets a little bit of the vig on top, you know? And um, he's living a little bit better, but let's say, you know, he's not living in the caves now, he's living in the hut, right? And then, you know, agriculture happens. So we need to organize people. So the chief becomes Pharaoh and he gives everyone a hut, but he gets a palace. So now, you know, you're, you're doing better in the hut, but relative to the palace, you're doing worse than you were, you know, as far as the relationship of the cave to the hut. So then, you know, you get to, um, you know, so that's basically like a monarchy, right? And then once you get past that, you get the capitalists, right? And the capitalists take enough power to not own one palace that's built by the people, but now he can accumulate enough wealth to own all the palaces in a, gen in a general area and then sell those at a premium while you may have come out of the hut, but now you're in an apartment. You know, that seems better. It has maybe it has air conditioning, you know, maybe, you know, it has a TV in it, but it's it's not, you know, the ability to travel on a personal jet anywhere around the world. You know, it's not the ability to live, you know, in a house or a penthouse suite in any hotel anywhere in the world. You don't have that ability. And it's definitely not the ability to employ laborers to do whatever you want for them. Right. So it's definitely not that. So I think not only I don't think it's necessarily a regression back into feudalism. I, I think it's a forward progression as far as the funneling of as more and more wealth is accumulated, more of it goes to the top and more power is localized, not only in a central region, but globally. And I think that's that's kind of the, the, the perverse nature of what's going on is that it doesn't just regress. It gets it can get worse. You yeah. Know? Sorry, yeah, sorry I see what you mean. Everybody. Like, yeah, I think like, you know, the golden chains in this instance then became like, you know, Netflix or Uber or Grubhub. You get, you know, this kind of acceleration of consumerist convenience. But at the same time, uh, it's 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 completely out of proportion to the amount of of social capital that's just been appropriated by a very small group of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's yeah, I, I think there in that respect, he's drawing an important distinction between um, um, social position, he calls it, and the material position. So the material position might be what we call the real wage or the absolute standard of living, and the social position we could call maybe the relative standard of living or the nominal wage. And so I, by that, I mean like what you get versus um, how it compares to what other people get. And so, um, you know, we can't deny that in that capitalism is the most productive um, mode of production that has ever existed in human history. And it, and it, um, it just, it vastly outperforms everything else and makes everything obsolete and nothing can compete. 
in that sense, it has a historically progressive role, and we'd be totally wrong to think that humanity would be better off without it, um, because it it develops the the technology from you know hand looms, the cotton spinning jennies, to textile mills, and now um, you know the the cost of of fabric and clothing drops and drops and drops. It becomes easier and easier. It still inv- involves exploitation, of course, but capitalism is very productive. So I think the point that he's making is, um, you know, the absolute standard of life can rise in, in history, but that, so workers can get better stuff, maybe more cheaply. Um, if you think like phones, for instance, you know, a, a, a crappy burner flip phone, um, 20 years ago was expensive. I remember the first time I ever saw a mobile phone, my dad had one in his, in his car for work. It was the size of a backpack. Um, but they get smaller and they get cheaper and, um, they, they start out as luxuries and then they become necessities. And now in fact, everyone has to have one. And so, you, you know, you know, 10, uh, five years ago, a uh, fancy iPhone costs a lot. Now the same model doesn't cost much. It's the same real thing, but the price changes. And so, you know, he's saying that, what we really enjoy can get better, but um, but those at the top, as you put it, um, relatively speaking, um, uh, are much higher above us, and so our power, the workers' power, decreases even as the um, um, absolute standard of living might incre- increase. You get better quality calories, you might be healthier, but you're relatively speaking, so politically speaking, less powerful and you have less control of your own fate. And so the other thing he says is um, that the most p- favorable situation for the working class uh, is the most rapid growth of capital, um, uh, which is to say the quicker working class um, uh, uh, produces more profit, um, the more it multiplies and augments the power inimical to it, which exploits it. I think what he's saying there is that the best possible situation um, within the capitalist mode of production of the wages system is this one, where we produce a lot cheaply. Um, and um, and it can't get any better without exiting that system or, or making another system. And so that that's the motivation. And so in a sense, you know, people say, or I'm sorry, the manifesto says, and Marxists often quote, you know, the, the capitalists produce their own gravedigger, the working, the working class, it didn't quite pan out. Um, I think what he's saying here is that cap- the workers kind of dig their own grave in capitalism because the more you work, the more capital you produce, the more the power that exploits you, you, know, you get a better real standard of living maybe in the historical long-run perspective, but we live in the short run, and so you increase the power that exploits you. And finally, the golden chains business, the accoutrement and the, you know, like, oh, I have, um, you know, I have, um, you know, um, a nice, it's like a dog with a nice collar. Um, in capital, he said, he talks about invisible threads. The worker is bound to the capitalist in invisible threads. You know, you feel free because you can switch employers, but you can't walk away from the capitalist class. And so there's that dependence there. And so I think he's saying here, um, let's not fool ourselves. The best possible situation is one in which you're dependent on this thing to exploit you. All right. So I have an important question here. Um, <clears throat> We've 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 run through a lot of time. So do we want to leave the people with homework or do we want to go over one more? Let's do the last one and close it out. Let's do one more. And then All right. yeah, just just five. All right. So what is the dynamic of capitalist society and competition? How do they relate to one another? What is Marx's claim? Uh, please summarize for us. Also, uh, how do monopolies affect this picture? 
So the quote goes as follows. The more powerful and costly the means of production that he has called into existence enable him. It is true to sell his wares more cheaply, but they compel him at the same time to sell more wares to get control of a very much greater market for his commodities. Consequently, this capitalist will sell his half yard of linen more cheaply than his competitors. But the privilege of our capitalists is not for of long duration. Other competing capitalists introduce the same machines, the same division of labor, and introduce them upon the same or even upon a greater scale. And finally, this introduction becomes so universal that the price of linen is lowered not only below its old, but even below its new cost of production. We thus see how the method of production and the means of production are constantly enlarged, revolutionized, how division of labor necessarily draws after it greater division of labor, the employment of machinery, greater employment of machinery, work upon a large scale, work upon a still larger scale. This is the law of continually of continue. This is the law that continually throws capitalist production out of its old ruts and compels capital to strain even more the productive forces of labor. For the very reason that it has already strained them, the law that grants it no respite and constantly shouts in its ear, march, march. This is no other, uh, this, this is no other uh, law than that which within the per periodical fluctuations of commerce necessarily adjusts the price of a commodity to its cost of production. The realm of social contradiction contradictions. Let's not let's not continue. Let's let's all right. Let's, let's go there. So so number six is the homework then. Yeah, number six. So just Ooh. think about what John Elster says. We can talk about it, but um, but let's let's focus on this because this is going to give us plenty to think about. Yeah, I mean, this was making me think of what we started with, where the mode of production and material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. I mean, what I what I see in this is kind of. There's a compulsory aspect to capital where, I mean, ostensibly it's about free individuals making free choices, but the choices they can make are more or less determined by the, comp the dynamics of competition. I mean, there's almost like a game theory mechanism to it where you are compelled to act a certain way, either as a producer or as a, a worker, just by virtue of the fact that you're one, a producer competing with workers, but you're also a producer competing with other producers. And so there's kind of just this self-perpetuating um, imperative that goes along with it. And that is really just the outcome of the goal of maximizing profits, maximizing um, surplus value. But then, of course, this has a feedback effect on the overall social mechanism that then accelerates things um, in, in a way that, I mean, I think the, the, at the end, this, this you know, pretty troubling uh, command, march, march, it's this is no other law than that which within the periodical fluctuations of commerce necessarily adjusts the price of a commodity to its cost of production. So there's, there's, uh, I mean, I, in so far as there is sort of a, a talk of, of a material inevitability in certain aspects of capital, which is, you know, sometimes attributed to Marx, I think there is a sense that there's a necessity to 
how different different members or different participants um, act within the production process. It's okay. So I'm from far, far west Texas, from El Paso, like sort of right, like jammed in between New Mexico and Mexico. And I spent the most of the last seven years living in Richmond, Virginia. And so whenever I you know go back home driving or, or whatever, there's a reason to travel across the country by car. <clears throat> if I don't go through the South, I go through the Midwest. And that's just like, it's like state after state of George, corn, soybeans, uh, wheat, corn, soybeans, wheat, like mostly corn, frankly. Um, that's not a normal motive. That's not a normal method of agricultural production. That is like the most extreme capitalist distortion that has been <laughs> placed on the entire center of the fucking country. There's states that are larger than countries right there in, you know, uh, pick a state, I Iowa, Southern Minnesota, Southern Minnesota. Um, you know, all those states too. You guys are actually in the Midwest. Um, and it's, 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 it's like larger than countries. Like the um, American corn may be the cheapest food stuff in, you know, uh, in, in human history, like that, that corn country <laughs> jammed into the middle of our country supports, uh, not supports in a capital sense, but, but feeds entire countries. Um, and like, it's, I guess in some way that's good, but it's like, it's, 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 um, it, it has this incredibly distorting effect on everything that touches on the health of American citizens, on the food productivity of every, every other country on the planet, um, on soil depletion, on, on anything you can think of. That's what capitalism does. You know, it, it, it takes the, those, those costs and it cranks it up like, like, like the mechanization, the, uh, the reduction in the workforce necessary to produce this ocean of corn every single fucking every single year. Um, that's, that's what this, that's what this talks about to me, that, that ocean of corn that you drive across in the middle of this country. Mm -hmm. And no one can compete. I mean, that being the point that no one can compete. Yeah. yeah. Right. <clears throat> and like to extend that ocean of corn, I'll start off with corn, but to me, like the extension of this, maybe not directly in the quote, but it's, it's talking about, I think what this creates is perverse incentives. So yeah. when you're talking about corn, corn is at the point uh, where Mark says, um, you know, it's produced below its new cost of production, below the cost of production. So if you were to actually sell corn without subsidies, you know, you would be selling it for zero dollars. Yep. You would be making zero profit. You would be selling it at a cost that's so low that there would be zero surplus value created, right? Which for the capitalist would be functionally giving it away. So what that generates is the, the necessity for them to lobby the government to give them a subsidy or to create something, to create a new market for them like ethanol, right? Which yep. isn't necessarily good for the environment and working class people in areas where they produce this ethanol, right? So that's one of the, the first perverse incentives, but like the second, is monopolies, right? So if you keep on innovating and you keep on getting ahead and every time you get ahead, every other capitalist takes up your innovative practices, whatever that is, and they catch up to you, right? A capitalist is gonna get tired of this, right? You know, they're, they're gonna be like, I, 
you know, this competition thing, you know, I keep on innovating, but these guys keep on catching up. Maybe, maybe I don't want to compete anymore. So why don't I just take over the whole market? So when I have, you know, this advantage, I'm going to price everyone out of the market. And then when I price everyone out of the market, hey, I control it now. I can dictate price. So that's the incentive. This, this form of cap or this capitalism incentivizes monopoly, which then actually diminishes the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, I guess, relative, you know, wages, it diminishes the relative standard of life for everyone. Once you're able to charge whatever you want in the form of, once you're able to to charge just about whatever you want for what you're making. And like, to end it, when we think of monopolies, most of the time we're thinking about, you know, either the board game or we're thinking about something like, you know, Microsoft in the 90s getting so big that it had to be broken up. You know, that type of monopolist is bad, but it also creates the incentive of monopolies for entire countries. So, you know, we're all in America talking about this thing nice and nice and comfy. And we're nice and comfy, comfy because America essentially has monopoly on, you know, the dollar, which is the universal currency for the world. So we have generated a monopoly. And then to further uh, perverse that incentive, Having that monopoly over the dollar incentivizes America to build the largest military on the planet because we have to protect that monopoly. So satanic virus. There you you go. Scott's got it, man. You know, all we need to do is uh, make the, the, the death metal band, you know. And, uh, satanic maybe, virus. Maybe, I would. I would. We should get T-shirts. I would. You know. I would you know? go to a satanic virus show. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so that's. I think it's just to me. It. Uh, you know, shows us what you can get from this is that that March, 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 um, just ends really in a March, March, March to to war by necessity. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think so. If we distinguish two things, on the one hand, competition; on the other hand, monopoly. Let's leave monopoly out of the picture for a second. Let's just talk about competition. I what I sense is that there's a good and a bad side to this. Marx thinks uh, undeniably, but they can't really be completely taken without each other. So um, he talks about the coercive laws of competition. Um, That's his phrase, and I think what he's saying is that in the course of profit seeking, capitalists will try to use the most advanced, uh, most state of the art technique as uh, possible, in order to produce as much as they can as cheaply as they can. Um, and eventually every other capitalist will be compelled to do so. And so, you know, if we think, um, think about, you know, what is profit really? Let's get, let's dump the Marxian jargon and let's just think about it simply. Price equals profit plus cost of production. You have costs of production plus the profit for the capitalist. And that's the price of the thing, right? So there are basically two ways to increase your profit. You can either increase the price But if your price is higher than your competitors, no one's going to buy your stuff. You're going to go to business. So if you want to make profit, but you can't just arbitrarily raise prices, you have to cut your costs. Um, You have to cut your costs. And that's why you have to innovate, make new technology. You have to make um, sort of, you know, progress has to be made. You go from the hand loom to the spinning jenny to the textile mill. And um, in order to cut your prices so you can produce more cheaply in order to increase your profit at the same price. So you're selling it for the same price 
but because you pay less to produce it, you have greater profit. And so, um, you know, Marx says that uh, this throws capitalist production out of its old ruts, old ruts, it destroys tradition, and it compels capital to uh, to do new, better, faster, more. Um, and he says it's revolutionized. It's revolutionary. Um, basically, um, when all the other capitalists adopt the same technique that a single capitalist uses to get ahead uh, by producing more cheaply and increasing the relative profit margin, um, when all the other capitalists do that, that profit margin is competed away. And so... I think that's what he means when he says um, the um, the dynamic of that new technique becoming universal, becoming standard, it adjusts the price of the commodity to its cost of production. Um, basically, you know, dy- the dynamic of competition lowers the cost of things. And so only in the short term does producing more cheaply increase your your profits. In the long run, what happens is that better stuff becomes more readily available. And so that's the progressive element, right? You know, like now everybody can have a flip phone, no big deal, right? Um, Everyone may even be able to have a smartphone, no big deal. Um, The downside is um, the coercive the coercive side. Namely, if you're a capitalist and you don't accept accept the latest innovation, you'll be competed out of the market, you'll be driven out of business, and all the workers that you employ will be um, unemployed. And I think that's what he means when he says the privilege of our capitalists is not of long duration. So, so suddenly, let's say you can make, you know, Thaddeus has a lemonade stand. I have a lemonade stand. I find a way to get lemons and sugar a lot cheaper than he does. So, so I don't raise my prices to get profit. I lower my prices and everyone comes to me, but because I'm paying less to do it, I, I have the same or more profit. No one goes to him. And now I'm a monopolist. I get the whole lemonade market. And that's when things really go haywire because then progress is no longer necessary. That's, that's what I get out of it. Right on. So I think, you know, in the interest of time, this is around, we, we've talked around the same amount of time for anyone listening that we usually talk in the class, um, you know, so come join us, have a good time. But um, I'm going to leave you guys with number six for some homework for you guys to think about. So, you know, that's, that's for you. That's my gift. That's my gift to everyone. So, but on that note, um, I'm going to thank everybody for coming, especially Eric and Scott. You know, it's actually been real fun, you know, starting up the uh, class unity worldwide intergalactic, you know, what what, what do we call it? Um, The the satanic. No, no. Scott, Scott, help me out here. Come on, come on, come on. You're going to scare people. You're going to scare people. (laughs) All right. So, uh, yeah, just 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 can join us, you know learn a bit, a little bit, a little bit about Marx, a little bit about class unity. And so we can understand these things. And, um, I mean, I you say, know, when we have the the chance, I yeah. say that, I say that because people get? actually say things like this. You all are kidding, but I've heard some crazy things people say. So yeah, come, come. Yeah. yeah I, I, we, we should limit it on a podcast because sarcasm and context are, are lost on a lot of people these days. So, you know what, I'll keep it light and you Come join the worldwide intergalactic class unity and the uh, the education committee of uh, class unity puts on these public education events to try to uh, to make um, uh, Marxian socialist theory and political economy accessible and it's a lot of fun so we hope you we hope you can come thanks thanks a lot guys it's been a blast all right have a good one y'all too.